Well, good morning to you again. Um, my name is Clay Holland, senior pastor here at Christ the King. Somebody asked recently why we weren't putting our worship leaders and preachers' names in the order of worship. It's not actually a conspiracy. It was mainly because um, when we started kind of doing this uh, back in the spring, we thought we might have to pivot, you know, kind of quickly on sermon, and actually we did, on sermon leading and and, and preaching. So we just decided not to put our names in there for a while. So you will know that the pandemic is over when names go back into the orders of worship. But, uh, you know, uh, I do think, though, as we come to this passage, we're going to read here in just a second from Mark chapter 12, beginning in, thir- in verse 13. Uh, I, I do believe that the Lord has a, a sense of humor. I believe that for a lot of reasons. This is one of them. I planned this sermon series way back in May of 2019. Y'all remember 2019, the good old days? I planned this sermon series, and, and I certainly did not plan uh, to preach on this particular passage at the end of September uh, after the summer that we have had you know, in our culture and in our country on what is perhaps the most explicit political statement uh, of, of Jesus. It wasn't really my intent, but here we are. Uh, here we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. So I'm going to read those words and then we will uh, look into this passage. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we do uh, pray that because of our encounter with you and your word this morning, we would give ourselves fully and finally to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. There is a surprising amount uh, of kind of depth to these words of Jesus. So I just want us to kind of jump right in and look at what's going on in this passage. It begins with a reference to they. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about this. The they in Mark chapter 12 are what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the collection of the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem. This scene, along with all these other conflicts that Jesus is in, takes place in the city of Jerusalem during what we now understand as Holy Week, the time in between Palm Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus, and his crucifixion. And on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter Sunday. This is all taking place during that week. 
And the Sanhedrin is made up of the scribes uh, and the elders and the chief priests. So the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem, the scribes who are the key theologians of Jerusalem, they are the, uh, the people who know the Bible the best, and the elders who were the teachers. They're the people that taught the people the Bible. And they send to Jesus a a small contingency made up of Pharisees and Herodians. And they were highly threatened by the presence of Jesus in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 11, uh, in verse 18, we learn what their ultimate goal for him is. Is that they set about trying to destroy Jesus. They didn't want to learn from him. They didn't want to interact with him. They didn't even want to discredit him. They were intent upon destroying Jesus. And one of the tactics that they used to do that was to try to get Jesus to entrap himself in his own words. Either he was going to say something blatantly heretical and against the Bible, or he was going to say something revolutionary and against the Roman government who occupied Jerusalem at that time. That was their goal. So this is where our story begins. They recruit some Pharisees and Herodians, and they sent them as a delegation to Jesus to trap him and destroy him. Now, this is the first thing that we actually need to unpack, because this is important. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. There were diametrically opposed parties in the first century just as they are now. We're going to meet another group next week, the Sadducees, also not friends. They're not friends. They weren't even collegial with each other. They were downright hostile with each other. And this was due mostly to their diametrically opposed political viewpoints. And that's why they came to Jesus with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. You see, the Pharisees, in a political context, they were loyal to the concept of Jewish government in Jerusalem and Jewish self-rule in Israel. In the first century, when this event happened, this was not the case. They were ruled over by a a, a governing power. They were part of the Roman Empire, Israel and Jerusalem. Caesar was the emperor. Caesar's agents were the political rulers over the people. And they allowed the leaders in Jerusalem, at least for a while, uh, to worship God in the temple as they saw fit and even to have some level of influence upon civil affairs so long as that did not result in insurrection or in revolution against the Roman government. The Pharisees, while they were not overt revolutionaries, they did resent the Roman occupation of Israel. And they longed for the time when the Messiah would come, in their view, and restore rule in Jerusalem and Israel back to the Jews. The Herodians were completely different, 180 degrees different. They derived their name by being loyalist to Herod. You might remember Herod from the Christmas story. Herod is the one who uh, gave the order to kill all of the children in the land of Judea under the age of two years, two years and under. He was loyal to the Roman Empire. He was Jewish ethnically, but he was a puppet ruler of the Roman Empire in Jerusalem and in Israel. The Herodians, therefore, 
were loyal to the Roman government. And they were also despised as, so they were despised as traitors, but they were also held in suspicion because they were cultural progressives in some sense. They were, uh, they leaned toward the customs and the morals and the ethical uh, stature of, uh, of the Greeks and Greek thought. And they were therefore viewed as often deviating from biblical teaching. So these were not friends. They didn't have much in common. In any other context, they would be arguing with each other. But you know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? They had a common enemy. Their common enemy was Jesus. Jesus was too liberal for the Pharisees because he claimed the authority of God to do things like touch lepers and heal sick people on the Sabbath. But he's way too conservative for the Herodians because he maintained, you know, biblical ethics, like biblical sexual ethics regarding things like the exclusivity and the sanctity of permanence of marriage. And so for very different reasons, they come and make an alliance to trap Jesus. And that's where we get to the crux of this passage, where we see a question to condemn and we see an answer to set free. A question to condemn and an answer to set free. Now first, the question to condemn. The question to condemn centers on an attempt to reduce and categorize Jesus into one camp in order, as Mark says, to destroy him. It's a political question, totally. And its intention is to set Jesus either in the camp of the Pharisees politically or in the camp of the Herodians politically so that the other camp will then reject him and destroy him. Here's how they do it. After some very kind and flowery words at the beginning talking about how good of a teacher Jesus is, which Mark has already warned us not to pay any attention to, not that Jesus is a good teacher, but that they didn't really mean it when they said it. In verse 14, there are two questions posed to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? Now, do you see what's happening here? In effect, the Pharisees and the Herodians are taking out of the question any concept of nuance or discussion And they are essentially presenting to Jesus a yes or a no question. It's a zero-sum proposition for Jesus. Yes or no? Should we or shouldn't we? Where do you align yourself, Jesus? Who are your friends? Who are your enemies? Who's your tribe? Who's your camp? How can we reduce you, Jesus, in order to understand you and then condemn you? That's the question that they're asking. It's a very serious situation because if Jesus accepts the zero-sum nature of this question and he simply answers a yes or no question, he will be destroyed. Because if he accepts it and he says this, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, period, says nothing else. Well, every single person that had followed him up to that point would immediately abandon him and they would accuse him of being a liar and a false teacher. They may have even formed a mob to set upon him. And that is because they still had an understanding of the Messiah as one who would be not loyal to the Roman government but would want to raise an army and would want to defeat them and restore rule in Jerusalem to the Jews. So if Jesus had simply said, yes, pay your taxes, full stop, the people 
would have rebelled against him. But on the other hand, if he had simply asked, answered the question, no, no, you should not pay the taxes to Caesar, period, full stop. Well, while the people may have celebrated him, the Herodians would have walked right out of there, right to the Roman governmental authorities in Jerusalem and said, hey, this Jesus guy is planning insurrection against you. He's planning to raise an army. He's saying revolutionary things. They would have arrested Jesus and probably executed him as being an insurrectionist. That is how they attempted to destroy Jesus. They attempted to do it with a zero-sum yes or no question. To, the, the idea was to reduce Jesus' entire mission into one definable political camp when his mission could not be contained by any one definable political temporal camp. The mission of Jesus is bigger than that. It is broader than that. It's more expansive than that. It stretches beyond the borders of Jerusalem, beyond the borders of Israel, to the ends of the earth and even beyond to reconciling the cosmos, putting all things under Christ's feet. Now, I think it's not hard for us then to understand the loneliness that Jesus must have felt at that moment. In fact, the loneliness he felt throughout his entire ministry. One group of people is calling for a revolution. One group of people is calling for acquiescence, right? And everyone is looking at Jesus and saying, well, what about you, Jesus, yes or no? Are you a revolutionary or are you a loyal subject? Tell us, where do you fit? What camp are you in? What tribe are you in? How can we reduce you? If you're a follower of Jesus, I think that zero-sum reductionism may sound familiar to you, right? It certainly feels like we are being screamed at culturally more than ever uh, in the same way that Jesus was challenged. Where do you land? What's your tribe? How can I reduce you? How can I reduce you to the lowest common denominator and then attack you, right? Which side are you on? Who are your friends? Who are your enemies? That's the posture of our culture right now. And maybe that's your posture toward other people. I have noticed personally this mode of discourse being primary on all of our social media platforms. You know, what, what, what social media really does uh, is it specializes, in some sense, in drawing people who already agree with you to agree with you more while taking people who disagree with you and pushing you farther away from them. You may have a different, I may be of a particular generation, and you may have a different experience. But I can tell you from my own personal experience, I have never read a kind of, um, a, a, a kind of inflammatory social media post and then read in the comments somebody say something like this. You know, until I just read your post, I thought exactly the opposite. But now you have totally opened my eyes to what is true, and I'm completely different. It, I never have seen that, ever. Basically, you see somebody, they throw something down, and people say, yes, yes, amen, or they say, you must be out of your mind, or something like that, or even worse. That's kind of the way that it works. So many ways, and so many of these things are those tribalistic calls. 
How can I define you? How can I reduce you? How can I, how can I put you in a camp that makes you definable to me so that I can either affirm you or attack you? Choose, are you with me or against me? Are you my friend or are you my enemy? You know, all of these things. They're questions to condemn. Now, what about the answer then that sets free? One of the things that I believe that we as followers of Jesus can learn most from Jesus, not just here, but in all of these episodes where he is under attack by the leaders in Jerusalem, is his utter and constant refusal ever, ever, not once, to get co-opted by any human being into any of their agendas. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I have not come to do my own will, but I have come to do the will of my Father in heaven. And in Mark, that means he is setting his eyes and his body and everything else straight to the cross and straight to resurrection, and he will not deviate from that purpose one iota, and no human being can take him and co-opt him and use him for their own agenda. And so he refuses the zero-sum game that is placed upon him by the Pharisees and the Herodians. He refuses the yes or no question completely. He completely refuses to answer it. He reorients it. And he reorients reorients them and he reorients us to his purposes. And here's how he does it. He says in verse 15, bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius was the exact amount of the tax that is in question here in Mark chapter 12. It's known as a head tax. It is equivalent financially roughly to one day's wage for the lowest uh, common uh, laborer in, in that culture. And so the deal with the, the, the head tax is that it was not financially onerous. It wasn't like a, a financially crushing tax. The objection to the head tax was what it represented because it represented subjugation and oppression. Essentially, what the Roman government was saying if you were in their empire was you had the privilege of us not wiping you off the face of the earth for one more year. That will be one denarius, please. You live. Give me a denarius. And every single time they had to pay it, it was a reminder that they were not their own, that they were ruled over by another, that they were subjects of a kingdom that was not their own. So they bring Jesus a denarius, and instead of answering the question yes or no, he starts talking about it, and he poses a counter question. Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? Now, we know the answer to this question because there are a lot of denarii floating around in the world. These are, I think, from the British Museum. You can see first century denarii around, and you can actually see the answer to the question that Jesus posed to those people. That is the image of Tiberius Caesar. You see the inscription both on the front of that coin and on the back of that coin. On the front of that coin, it is abbreviated, But it says this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, which you can see not abbreviated, you can see it a little bit better, where it says Pontius Maximus, high priest. Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. Really? That's what it says. Is that blatantly heretical and blasphemous? 
Oh yeah, it totally is. And so if you think that being a Christian in the context of living in Houston is tough, just remember the context that Jesus and the early church first broke into. Son of a God and high priest. Oh, that guy, I was going to point at the screen, but it's not there anymore. Um, that's actually a cross. That's a little bit of better an image. Uh, son of a God and high priest. So Jesus could have said a number of things in examining this coin, right? He could have said, look at this image and this inscription. This is obviously unbiblical blasphemy. And if you pay this tax, this is what you're supporting. You're supporting this message. But strangely, Jesus doesn't say that. He says something else that's really important. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now these are really familiar words, but let's take a step back and unpack this just a little bit. Because first and importantly, we need to note that Jesus changes the verb. He changes the verb in verse 17. The Pharisees and the Herodians ask him this question. Should we pay the tax to Caesar? Should we or shouldn't we pay it? That's a particular verb. Jesus doesn't use that verb. He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which belongs to God. He uses a different word. You see, to pay something suggests that you are giving somebody something that belongs to you. I'm giving you my money. I'm paying you. But to render means to pay back. It means to give somebody something back that already belongs to them. In other parables, Jesus uses this word when he talks about people repaying a debt. I borrow money from you. That money is actually yours. When I pay you back, I'm rendering to you. I'm paying it back to you. So here's what he's saying. The denarius belongs to Caesar. Pictures on it. His inscriptions on it. Literally, his treasury stand by. He prints it and he spreads it around the Roman Empire, this is his fine. Give it back to him. But then if you take the metaphor of the image and the inscription and you apply it to the second part of that sentence, it becomes very powerful. Because where is the image of God placed? Where is the image of God? Well, in the context of this passage, there's really two places. One is it's standing in front of these people, speaking to them. As Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But more than that, the Bible tells us back in uh, at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis that every human being is created in the image of God. If you are a human being, you are imprinted with the image of God on your heart. Now, where is the inscription of God? Well, two places. We have the Word of God, the Scriptures, inscription, Scriptures, same thing, the writings of God, but also we learn from the Apostle Paul that the law of God is written on the heart of every human being. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's saying, this denarius belongs to him, fine, give it to him, but render to God, give back to God what belongs to him. What is he saying? What belongs to God? You, me, them, us, we belong to God. The call is to give our entire selves to him. So what Jesus is doing here is cautioning us against something that has been a great temptation since the very beginning of time. Still a temptation in the first century when he was talking. He is cautioning us against political ultimacy. 
He's cautioning us against political ultimacy. He is cautioning us against seeing our ultimate hope as seeing as ultimate in any way the kings and the kingdoms of this earth. They get a denarius. God and his purposes and his kingdom get all of us. I want to leave you with this today as both a challenge and as an encouragement. Because by way of challenge, I want to ask you to search your heart right now and try to ascertain if you are truly viewing the world, your world, it's not your world, but the world through your eyes, through the lens of the full-orbed cosmic global kingdom of God, or if you're viewing it solely through the lens of the kingdom of man. It's really hard not to do that right now. It's super hard not to do that right now. Everything in our world is screaming at us to do that right now. But Jesus absolutely and steadfastly refused to be reduced into any camp that could not fully contain his cosmic purposes of the redemption of all things. He could not align himself 100% with the Pharisees. He couldn't align himself 100% with the Herodians. We'll see next week that he can't align himself 100% with the Sadducees. He aligns himself with the purposes of God, the kingdom of God. There will be some alignment and some misalignment, and he will absolutely refuse to co-opt his purposes of redemption into any of the existing tribalistic camps of that time. You see, I believe Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the Herodians with a challenge. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, full tribal allegiance in our secondary citizenship in this world is going to be impossible because the purposes of the kingdom of God are always going to push at it in some way, at points, against any human agenda Because no human agenda can fully contain the full cosmic redemptive purposes of the kingdom of God. That's the challenge. But there's also an encouragement and it's this. If right now you're living in some sense of fear and trepidation and who isn't? I mean it's just a little wacky. I mean it's just, it's just, it's just a. It's an uncertain climate in our world and in our country and in our state and in our city right now. And if you are hearing people all around you use words of ultimacy all the time, ultimacy related to a policy or ultimacy related to a candidate or ultimacy related to an election, you can be encouraged. You can be encouraged that the king of all creation By the way, the king who had to borrow a denarius for a sermon illustration because he didn't have one. But that shows you what kind of a king Jesus actually was. That this king rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits on his throne at the right hand of God. He rules over all things. He has not abandoned his post. Jesus has not let go of the wheel of history. He has not let go of the wheel of history. He's not abandoned. He's not abandoned his purposes. And what this does is it frees you, right? It frees you to live in this world without making everything that happens and every piece of news and every, you know, something that comes on, the, uh, comes across, you know, your, 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 um, 
your desk or your television or your computer ultimate because Jesus is ultimate. It frees you to live with faithfulness as a citizen of whatever human political realm that God has set you in without making it ultimate. So I would encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to be really careful about the language that you use regarding your secondary citizenship on this earth. It is important. God does not tell us to abandon that citizenship. He tells us to engage it, to engage it as one who is informed by our ultimate citizenship that is in heaven. We can able, we're able to do that. We're able to do that because our primary citizenship lies in heaven. And that citizenship aligns itself with all of the purposes of God. His purposes will not be thwarted. Why? Because the Lord our God reigns forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do confess right now that even sometimes when it seems hard to see those things, that you do sit on your throne, that you do hold all of history in your hand, and you are bringing it forward to your appointed end where heaven and earth will ultimately become one ruled over by you. We pray, Father, that we would embrace this citizenship so that as we engage as human beings in these places that you have placed us on this earth, that we do not abandon them but walk into them. We walk into them as those informed by your word, as those informed by our primary citizenship in heaven, by those who engage with faith, hope, and love. We ask these things in your most precious name. Amen.